Numbers chapter 30. We start here, and the title is Vows and Vengeance. But if you remember, as we continue to go through the Numbers, these are the final chapters of the book of Numbers, along with the book of Deuteronomy that we will see, records all the Lord's instructions through Moses given to prepare the people, the Israelites, into going into the promised land, which will bring about trials and tribulations or challenges, testings through this new adventure into the new promised land. And they certainly saw it through the 40 years in the wilderness. Now they've seen it each time that they're trying to approach to go into the wilderness, trials that come into their lives. The children of Israel are about to face battles going into the promised land. Sometimes they think, oh, wow, we're going to the promised land. The Lord has this. It's going to be great. New land. It's going to be just all milk and honey. You know, it's true. You will have milk and honey. And the fruit and the land is is green and, and fertile. Everything that God promised is true. But at times, also what is true is that you will face battles going into this new land. And the people of Israel will face these battles going into the promised land. And the Lord is preparing them now for those battles. And in this chapter, chapter 30 before us, God deals with the subject of accountability and integrity. And it is very important as you go into battle that the the guy next to you, who's going into your your battle buddy, that's going into battle with you, you need to make sure everyone's prepared because it's important, as we will see, if your battle buddy says to you, I will cover you, I've got your back, I've got this covered, don't worry, that they are prepared and that what they say, what their vow, what their promise, what their commitment is, is followed through and they, they will keep it. That you have to know that he is not going to change his mind. That he will come through with what he says in the heart of the battle when things get tough. Will he stick there or will he turn from that commitment? And we'll kind of see that played out here in chapter 30 and 31 here. And especially in chapter 30 we see here in verse 1. And then Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes concerning the children of Israel saying... This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. So right up front, we know that the instructions that are given to Moses is from God and God alone. And that Moses is now having to speak to the leaders that were assigned as we've gone through Numbers. They assigned leaders to each of those tribes. And that he had to command that the Lord said, these are not something for you to think about Decide maybe you will keep that commandment or not. No, no. God is saying to me to tell you that this is Lord's commandments and this is a have to, not debatable. These are not debatable things. And how many times we read this word of God and people look at there and it says the Lord said and you must and you have to. I mean, he's telling you things. But in our minds sometimes we look at it. I'll take or leave that. I'm not really. Let's just let's change this. Let me go to a different book. I don't like that one. No, that's, that's, how, that's how it works, right? When you think that way, you know you're not rightly thinking. You're not, as we learned on Sunday, you're spiritually not mature yet. You know, you're like a child. I tried the beans. I liked it today and tomorrow. I, I don't like the beans now. I want the peas, you know. Oh, I don't like the beans. I don't like the peas. I don't like anything green. I just want the sugar. So it's just, it, until you mature and understand that you must have a good, healthy 
balance and diet. Verse 2, if a man makes a vow to the Lord or swears an oath or a promise, another word there is promise, to bind himself by some agreement, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. We will find that God takes things very seriously when it comes to making a vow and making a promise or making a commitment. That God just takes those, he hears all things that are coming out of your mouth. Even if it didn't come out of your mouth, you've committed that. You have to understand, he hears and understands these things. And a vow before the Lord is not some small thing. God expressly commanded that Israel should be careful to keep its vows and to fulfill every promise or oath that they've made. Now, a, a, a vow is a promise to do something. I vowed to do something. Whereas an oath or a pledge is a promise not to do something. I promise I won't do that again. I, pro I take an oath, I won't do that again. So vows and promises. And it comes with the right heart. Are you committed to that vow? Are you committed to that oath or that promise? The question is, are you going to turn back on that commitment? Turn away from your word. Well, God doesn't take that lightly. In many churches today, the breaking of an oath is some standard business practice. It's just business. It didn't work out. Just saying, you know, these things happen. They'll get over it. It's just business. No, no. God says this is sin. <laughs> and sin will be dealt with when you go against your vow, when you go against your promise, when you have not com you're not committed, when you sit there and say, I commit, I'm going to do this. And you're, you had no even intention of doing it. You were just kind of pacifying them and say, yeah, you know, things happen. You know, I got busy. I got busy here. No, that's not how it works. Some people today believe that the vows and oaths are not permitted for a Christian today. They think it's because of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verses 34 and through 37. It says, but I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes and your no, no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. You can go back and also we'll get to James, James chapter 5, verse 12, that talks about this. But in the context of the scripture here, the rest of the scripture, we see that Jesus has not forbidden oaths. In general, as much as he's telling you and I, the scripture that God is, the Holy Spirit is telling you and I, to, that we must fulfill, be fulfilled with integrity of our words, that an oath is, is so solid on your, your word is your word, that you don't need to promise some, make some promise. You don't have to come out and say, I promise, I promise, I promise, I promise, I promise. No, when someone hears your words and your character of who you are, you don't have to make a promise. Just by saying, yes, I'll be there. You don't have to follow that and say, I promise I'll be there. I'll be there. That, they look at you and say, yes, you're a man of integrity. You're a man of accountability. You're, you take your words, yes, if your yes is serious. Your no is, is serious. 
Not, you know, so when you get to that point where you're spiritually mature and you understand the value when you say yes to someone, then that God hears all things and you're accountable to him. And he expects integrity. But Jesus answered, as we see in the scripture in Matthew 26, Jesus answered under oath in a court. So it's not like he says, I'm not making an oath. It, those things do happen. God himself swears an oath. We see in Luke chapter 1, verse 73. We studied in Hebrews. We saw that many times in Hebrews 3, 18, 3, uh, Hebrews 6, 13, and 17. So in even Acts 2, 2.30, we see these things are happening. But the point is, is that sometimes we use these vows or these oaths or promises and a false commitments to get your way or to sub, you know, kind of pacify and just kind of manipulate your way through this. And we have to make sure we take things serious because we see God takes things very serious here. And he's communicating that to his people. He says... He shall not break his word. He shall not do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Because God takes our vows so seriously, sometimes it is better not to make a vow. If you are sure you can make that commitment, you, you have to understand it's better not to make the vow. So when you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it, for he has no pleasure in fools Pay what you have vowed. It is better not to vow than to vow and not pay. We see in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. It's better that you just don't make the vow if you're not going to follow through and you don't have an intention to follow through. Don't do it. Many vows are just plain foolish. I'll never do that again. Is a foolish vow. Why? Because it is foolish and unwise to demand such a vow from someone else. You promise me, promise me, make an oath, make a vow that you'll never... You know, there's sometimes people will push people into something that they should never be intentioning in doing that. Because they have no capability to do it. And so sometimes people, through pressure... We'll try to get people to make decisions and you have to be very careful when you're pressured. Of course, there is a vow that we all can and should make. And that is a vow to praise God. We should be making a vow to praise God. Vows made to you are binding upon me, O Lord. I will render praises to you. Psalm 56, 12. Psalm 61a says, So I will sing praise to your name forever that I may daily perform my vows. So when it's in line with God's will and God's purpose and God's strength and a spirit of moving, you can make those vows. Because it's in line with the scriptures. It's, 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 it's praising him, it's worshiping him, it's, it's honoring him. Now we see in verses 3 through 5, we're going to see different scenarios of vows and how the Israelites were supposed to handle these vows. And the first one is the vows that are not binding, and it's a, regarding a young woman under her father's household. Look at here in verses 3 through 5. 
Or if a woman makes a vow to the Lord and binds herself by some agreement while in her father's house in her youth, and her father hears her vow and the agreement by which she has bound herself, and her father holds his peace, then all her vows shall stand, and every agreement with which she has bound herself shall stand. But if her father overrules her on the day that he hears, then none of her vows nor her agreements by which she has bound herself shall stand, and the Lord will release her because her father overruled her. Now notice this, in the verses 3 through 5, this young lady is making a vow. And she's making a vow and it's to the Lord because now she is under the, under the, under the holding of the Lord. The Lord says, I just heard you make a vow. I'm holding you to this. I heard you make a vow to me. And the only way that's going to get released is if the father hears that vow and then says, oh, what? whoa, 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 wait, wait, wait. You, 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 you can't keep that vow. You're, we're going to overrule that. You can't make that vow. The Lord will release her from that. Why? Because as a young person under a household of authority, which is the father, the husband of the father, and the husband, but the father in this case, over that house, has the responsibility by God to oversee their children. And that an unmarried woman vow was not taken as binding unless approved in some way by her father. And her father had the right to overrule that. And God saw that structure that he put in place. God, the father over the family, and the kids must listen to the father. And he has the say. Now in verses 6 through 8, we see a wife's vow overruled by her husband. And it says, indeed, she takes a husband while bound by her vows or by a rash utterance. <laughs> she it was very rash. She should not probably said that out of her mouth, but she said a rash utterance from her lips by which she was bound herself. And her husband hears it and makes no response to her on that day that he hears that her vows shall stand. And her agreements by which she bound herself shall stand. But if her husband overrules her on that day that he hears it, he shall make void her vow which she took and what she uttered from with her, with her lips by which she bound herself and the Lord will release her. So in this scenario, a, a married woman who makes a vow was not taken as binding unless the husband is been ratified by him somehow, some way, who had the right to overrule. So notice, if he didn't say anything, it stands. Or if he did say something, it says, no, you can't keep that vow, then it changes. Now look at here in verse 9, we have a widow or a divorced woman happen here. Also, any vow of a, of a woman, of a, win, a widow or a divorced woman, by which she has bound herself, shall stand against her. This is different because now she doesn't have a husband. That means she's directly accountable to God in regards to the vow she makes. And if she makes a vow, it stands. A widow and a divorced woman have had no male head over her in this regards. That means she's directly accountable to God and she is bound by her vows that she makes. Oh, there's security, ladies, 
in when you're married, there is a security when you have a godly husband who's going to be held accountable <laughs> for the whole thing that happens within the household. You're, you're, there's a freedom ladies have when they realize, once you understand, when especially when decisions are made, God is going to hold the man responsible. Oh, it's important that you understand that. And then when you become a widow, Lord willing not, or divorced woman, Lord willing not, you understand now you're accountable to God directly and you'll take full responsibility and accountability in the decisions you make. Now in verses 10 through 16, a wife's vow confirmed by her husband, look at this, if she vowed in her husband's house or bound herself by an agreement with an oath, or her husband, and her husband heard it and made no response to her and did not overrule her, then all her vows shall stand. Every agreement by which she bound herself shall stand. But if her husband truly made them void on the day he heard them, then whatever proceeded from her lips concerning her vows or concerning the agreement binding her, it shall not stand. Her husband has made them void and the Lord will release her. Note here, every vow and every binding oath to afflict her soul, her husband may confirm it or her husband may make it void. Now, if her husband makes no response, whatever to her from day to day, then he confirms all her vows and all her agreements that bind her, he confirms them because he made no response to her on the day that he heard it, that he heard them. Verse 15, but if he does make them void after he had heard them, then he shall bear her guilt. These are the statues which the Lord commanded Moses between a man and his wife and between a father and his daughter and her youth in her father's house. Very interesting because if she vowed in her husband's house, if she makes vows, she makes promises, there's commitments. If the husband confirmed her, his wife's vow either specifically or by silence, Ooh, man, this is a lesson for us. There's something going on in the household and you hear your wife are making commitments and, and vows and promises and you go, I don't want any conflict. I'm going to stay silent on this. You, by silence, you have committed an agreement. By staying silent, you're in agreement. It doesn't work when you sit there and say, I didn't say anything. I didn't want any problems, trouble. I didn't say anything. I just kind of stepped back because, you know, she kind of rules the roost, even though no man says that. And ladies just bulldoze over the man and puts him in submission. And then he puts into a position of saying nothing because it's better to have a peace in the house. Are you getting me? God sees it and still is going to hold responsible to that woman or that man. In this scenario, the specific silence or specific agreement, he was responsible to make sure that the vow was fulfilled regardless if the woman does not. 
Because he agreed or he is silenced, he is still held responsible. As he refers to, he shall bear her guilt. He will be held accountable by God because he's a head of the household. Ooh, men, you've heard me say this many times. You must take your responsibility seriously in the household. Mm-mm-mm. No rationalization, no justification. Ooh, you're going to be held responsible. Every vow, every binding oath to afflict her soul will afflict, will afflict your soul. You will bear it. You're going to feel the hurt. Her husband may confirm it or her husband may make it void. And this is an outward or outworking, maybe I should say, an outworking of the principle of headship. Laid out right, very clearly right here. When God declares someone to be in a position of a rightful authority, and others are expected to submit to that authority, regardless of how they feel, the head also is accountable before God for the result. That's why you can submit to the position of authority because the person in the position of authority is the one that's going to be held accountable. Ultimately, God never grants authority without accountability. And anyone who understands leadership, when you give someone authority to do something, comes with accountability. And when this is understood, it makes submission much easier because so many people want that authority. They want the responsibility. They want to do what they want to do. But then when you hold them accountable for not doing it and what they say they promised and vowed in a commitment, then they freak out on you. You've been a, if you've been a leader in any kind of work environment, <laughs> if you, you see it also in the households so of kids will freak out on the parents when they're trying to hold them accountable for doing what they said they were going to do and cleaning the room. It happens in the church as well. If we just do it God's way <laughs> and learn to lead and learn to submit and learn and understand authority and accountability and integrity, it would make things much smoother in your house. Much smoother in the workplace and much smoother even in a church environment. Now in chapter 31, we're going to see uh, the vengeance on Median. And this is where God says, you know, you might think you're getting away with things, but no, you don't get away with things. It may be delayed. <laughs> you, you might, if you come against me and my people, you might be delayed. You may not think there's a consequence. There's a consequence, and we see it played out here in Numbers chapter 31. Verse 1 and 2, we see, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take vengeance on the Midianites. For the children of Israel, afterward you shall gather to your people. So when we see this first part here, we can see that God commands Israel to take vengeance on the Midianites. Why? Because this is an interesting play here because Moses had already been told that he was going to die. Remember, we are studying that in Numbers 27, verses 12 and 13. Moses already knew. God said, I'm, I'm taking your life. You're going to die here. You're not going to the promised land. Now imagine you've got that, that clear indication God said you're going to die. 
He didn't obviously tell Moses when he's going to die. We know it sometime later because before he even died, he still held him responsible to do what? Right here, I need you to take vengeance. I'm going to give you the strength and ability to take vengeance on the people who came against my people and made them fall into seduction of immorality. Do you hear and see anything in the scriptures we'll read? Moses saying, wait a minute, I'm going to die here. I'm going to not doing anything else for you. <laughs> he didn't have an attitude that says, oh, I'm, at the, I'm old. I'm not doing anything else for you, Lord. I'm, 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 I'm going to only have six months left to live and three months left to live. I'm not doing anything for you, Lord. No, God, doesn't expect, God expects you just to be a, a vessel used by him, however he's going to choose to do it, right to the last breath that he allows you to take. Now, hopefully you're praising, worshiping him, and, and maybe ministering to the nurse who's taking care of you and, and witnessing, whatever it may be. Or these family members coming past your bed and saying, oh, I'm going to miss you, love you. And he's like, okay, that's fine, 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 fine. But listen to my words. You need to know Jesus. I need to see you in heaven. You need to give your life to Jesus. Do the work of the evangelist all the way to your last, last breath. Moses was to take vengeance on the Midianites. The Midianites were the nomadic people that combined themselves and associated themselves with Moab, and God commanded they be attacked and retribution for their seduction of Israel into sexual immorality and idolatry. We saw that taking place in Numbers 25. God's going to deal with it. I told you back in Numbers 25, God is going to deal with these people. This is not just going to be passive. Now, in general, when you say God is going to take vengeance, we kind of make that kind of becomes very uncomfortable conversation in the idea of vengeance in general for most people. Because it doesn't seem consistent with God's love that we talk about all the time. I'll give you a God of love, and then he's over here in the scripture saying, God of vengeance. That's why people sometimes say, oh, I only talk about God of love in the New Testament. I never read the Old Testament and, and want to talk about the God of vengeance. Like that's two, two different gods, and it's not, it's not true. You, you just have to spiritually grow and learn this, the whole scripture. Because right here we see that God is going to deal with sin, and when you come against him, he's, there is justice. In the context here, vengeance is something good that God is, is interested in. Why? Because the scriptures repeatedly speak of the vengeance of God as a positive thing. Evil comes when we take vengeance into our own hands. Not when God does it. Hebrews 10, verse 30, we studied that when in Hebrews. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord says the Lord will judge his people. We see that out of Deuteronomy. See, because Israel was in this unique place. With a special call to be an instrument of God's vengeance in this situation. To push back evil. To push back what is going on. And he uses people to do that. He uses the government today. He uses people in positions of authority called police and military to push back evilness. When the evilness is starting to spread and affect God's people. 
And then sometimes no person should take upon themselves today knowing that, that God just was, that there's a different God of the Old Testament than the New Testament. It's the same God. Ancient Israel had a unique place in God's plan to take out the evilness that was coming against his plan. And his plan is his people were to be in the promised land. And it's still t- true today. Anyone who comes against Israel, that nation will go down. It will. It's not a question if, it's only when. Because God said it will happen. So when God ordained instruments of authority, even such as the government today, take vengeance on evildoers, we as Christians can be at peace knowing that good has been done when the vengeance has been executed according to God's ways. Now in verses 3 through 5, we see Moses organizing the army to go to battle. We see so Moses spoke to the people saying, Arm some of yourselves for war and let them go against the Midianites to take vengeance for the Lord on Midian. A thousand from each tribe of all the tribes of Israel you shall send to the war. So there were recruited from the divisions of Israel 1,000 from each tribe or 12,000 armed for war. So how many many would need to go to the war? 12,000. God just needed 12,000, 1,000 from each tribe. And that's who he was going to use to take care and wipe out the enemy of, of his people. And verse 6 through 11 says, Then Moses sent them to the war, and 1,000 of each tribe. And he sent them to the war with Phineas and the son of Eleazar the priest. And very important you make note of that. With the holy articles and the signal trumpets in his hand. Very important, you note that. And they warned, uh, warded against the Midianites, just as the Lord commanded, and Moses and they killed all the males. They killed the kings of Median with the rest of those who were killed. And he names off a bunch of people here, including the kings. And even, note Balaam, the son of Beor, they also killed with the sword, which is interesting. Because Balaam is the guy, the prophet, who tried to, to uh, curse God's people and they ended up blessing God's people. And he did, wanted the money and then he, he was leaving. But as he was leaving, he was telling uh, the king, hey, I can't curse him. But you know how you can get God's people? Take your women and filtrate your women and your false gods in sleep with those men of Israel. And they will destroy themselves uh, within because of their flesh. Let the, let the women get in there. They'll, they'll tear them up. Sure enough, it happened. He went back to Pethor, P-E-T-H-O-R, Pethor, and here he's back. For some reason, he came back to be part of the Midianites. So somehow he decided he'd come back for more money or whatever. I don't know, but because he came back, you notice when they went against the war, they ended up killing Balaam, that prophet, with a sword. And the children of Israel took a woman, ah, 
took a woman of Median captive with their little ones and took as spoil all their cattle, all their flocks, and all their goods. They also burned with fire all the cities that, where they dwelt and all their forts, and they took all the spoil and all the booty of man and beast. So they went to war. They won, but they didn't do it God's way. No, 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 they didn't do it God's way. Why? Because in the scriptures we see when they went to a normal general war that they were fighting, they would go out among, as they would send the soldiers out to fight, they were to, could kill all the men, but keep the women and the children and all the booty, all the wealth and stuff and bring it back. That is normal. This wasn't a normal war. This was a holy war. How do we know it was a holy war? Because... Uh, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, priestly led this war along with the sanctuary elements and trumpets. This was God actually going to war against the Midianites. The people weren't going to go do it. God says, I'm going to do it. And that is how we know is because the priests and the elements of the sanctuary, these holy elements were going before and it was God's power that he was going to use just 12,000 to take out and wipe out an entire Mennonite nation. In a holy war we see in the scripture that they were not to do anything but wipe out completely everything. All living things were to be wiped out and, devote, and devoted completely off the, off the map and you could keep the material wealth. We see that in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 16 and 18, and Joshua 6, 15 and 9 through 19. But they didn't do that. We see in the scripture here, they compromised. They chose to kill all the men, but keep the women and children in the booty. Not going to be good for them. And we will find what happens here. But again... That mastermind, Balaam, who was the one that had the strategy to take Israel out by seducing him through sexual immorality and idolatry, they obviously, he's now dead. The vengeance becomes come upon him, so he didn't get away free thinking he, oh, no big deal. I'll give you the, give you the key to take him out, and I'm getting out of Dodge with my money. He, a very bad decision coming back, obviously, because he got caught up with that. In Jude 11, speaks of that heir of Balaam for profit. He, 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 this, this plan for profit. I'm going to profit through what God has given me the ability to do. There is consequences. And Balaam is the poster child of that heir of to sell out God for money. When you sell out God for money, you're a Balaam. You're, you're making the same heir and you will always lose every time when you do that even numbers 23 10 remember that let me Balaam said let me die the death of the righteous let me let my end be like his oh I want to be just like Israelites I want to be a righteous man and when I die I want to be a, known as a righteous man I want to be living a righteous he wanted he had the desire to be to do it God's way but Balaam had no interest in living the life of a righteous man. He wanted to die a righteous man, but he didn't want to live a righteous man till his death. How, how true is that in many cases for Christians today? I want to die righteous, but I have no desire to live righteous while I'm on this, while I'm living. 
that's not right thinking. That's a little, that you're, you're a little off. Not a little, but a lot off. It'll lead to your destruction. Verses 12 through 20, we see the division of the spoils. And Moses not happy once he realizes they kept the women of the median. Who infiltrated into the body of Israel and destroyed them as it is? The women. And they kept the women. You can see where those men were not thinking rightly here. Then they brought the they then they verse twelve. Then they brought the captives, the booty, and the spoils to Moses and Eleazar the priests and the congregation of the children of Israel and to the camp of the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho. Verse thirteen. And Moses and Eleazar the priests and all the leaders of the congregation went to meet them outside the camp. But Moses was angry with the officers of the army, with the captains over thousands and captains over hundreds, and 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 who had come from the battle. And Moses said to them, Have you kept all the women alive? Look, these women caused the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to, to uh, trespass against the Lord in the instance of Peor. And there was a plague among the congregations of the Lord. Remember? That brought a, a plague. And Moses and them had to intercede or all of them would have died. That's how bad this was. Did you remember people were dying and now you had the nerve to bring these women back and you know you're supposed to take them all out? Therefore, verse 17, every, kill every male among the little ones. All those little boys, take them out. And kill every woman who has known a man intimately. If she's not a virgin, take her out. But keep alive yourself all the young girls who have not known a man intimately. And as for you remain outside the camp seven days, whoever, because they're unclean, they're, they, they've killed, they have blood on their hands. Whoever has killed any person, whoever has touched any slain, purify yourself and your captives on the third day and on the seventh day. Purify your garments, everything made of leather, everything woven of goat's hair, and everything made of wood. So, Moses was not a happy camper, of course. And because of that anger, he had to sit there and make decisions because this is not right, you shouldn't have done it. But he compromised and he allowed the young women who were virgins not because they have not been with a man they, and, and they kept the little girls. So they're, again, all virgin women. Again, why he did that, interesting that he did. But he found them probably more innocent in, in purity to be able to not be compromised, to be able to, to be among around the people. Um, but it's interesting that he allowed that to happen because it was a holy war and they weren't supposed to keep anyone alive, any animal alive. Now, Christians are often tripped up by things that were a threat, but they didn't see them as a threat. And, and that's where you just sit there and you go, I don't see them as a threat, so I don't see them as a threat, even though they are a threat. When God says it's a threat, it's a threat regardless of how you feel and whatever you think. Though most Israelites thought these women were safe, they were more dangerous to Israel than any army of mighty warriors. Those women were very dangerous for the people of Israel. 
Israel could overcome mighty warriors if they were spiritually strong and mighty to deal with it. But the seduction of the immorality and idolatry caused them to fall. And they had this leaning on their own understanding that the women were somehow not dangerous to the nation of Israel, even though it had already been proven that's exactly their fall came from that. And the things that we accept in the midst as Christians that open the door to immorality and idolatry can do far more real damage than any of those other things. We, we, we have times where we sit there and go, I can go there, it's not a big deal. I can mingle over here and spend time with people that are going against God. They're not going to affect me. And they do. Oh, I can watch this. It won't affect me. It does. I can read this. It won't affect me. It does. I can watch those late night things and no one knows. That's not going to affect me. No one knows. And it does. I can listen to that music. It's no big deal. It's just, it's just worldly music. But it does. So many times we compromise because of the things we want so desperate out of our flesh and leaning on our understanding and what the world has to offer. We don't even understand until it's too late. It is, you're compromising and it's affecting you of your spiritual walk. And you must be on guard of these things. But if you're not living in the Spirit, you're not walking in the Spirit, you're not hearing the voice of the Spirit. And you'll compromise. And you'll compromise. And so in my time, it'll affect you. And that's exactly what they did with these women. Strict application of the rules of holy war. These virgins were also supposed to be gone, but they, Moses allowed them not to. Verses 21 through 24, Then Eliezer the priest said to the men of the war who had gone to the battle, This is the ordinance of the law which the Lord commanded Moses. Only the gold and the silver and the bronze, the iron, the tin, the, and the lead, everything that can endure fire you shall put through the fire, and it shall be clean and it shall be purified with the water of purification. But all that cannot endure fire you shall put through water, and you shall wash your clothes on the seventh day and be clean, and afterwards you may come into the camp. So all the material spoil that they brought back had to be dealt with and, and, and cleansed according to God. All that material spoil had to either be purified by fire or cleansed by water. Only then would it be fit for use by God among God's people. Had to be tested. It had to be cleansed. It had to be through fire. Certain things God uses to to purify by fire. Some things by water. But either way, they had to be cleansed from the the what uh, they were bringing in. And so God uses the same means to purify a believer. He uses the same purifying ways, a test by the fire and washed by the water. He still does that today. We see that when God uses the fire for purification, he can say, like Job said, when he has tested me, 
I shall come forth as gold, Job 23.10. We've been studying that now in the book of James. Testing brings about a purification in your life. You'll be tested, and it shall come forth gold. There'll be something better that will come through that trial and tribulation you're dealing with. The fire purifies precious metals by causing the impurities or the dross to come up to the top to be then skimmed off so that as it heats up, the more heat, the more dross, the purifying of the gold to a point where you can actually see the reflection in the gold. Oh, how the trials and tribulations purify us and get the impurities out that we can see God even clearer in our lives and how important that is. When God wants to wash us clean, he not only uses the waters of baptism, but also the ministry of the word as described in Ephesians 5.26, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word. And we must understand something. I will not know what is gold or silver or bronze or tin or iron or lead or any precious metals that are stones that they're talking about here. What is that compared to what would might be wood or hay or stubble in my life? How do you know if it's precious material or just hay and stubble and wood? But only through the testing by fire will you know. One will stand with the fire, others will be just fade away. It will be gone, it will be just taken care of. And how are we to be purified? By the water of the word, Psalm 119.9. We'll see the results by how we react to the trials and the tribulations, the testings we face, will be, again, the washing of the water. If you're in a trial, go to the Word. You're being tested, go to the Word. Let it do its work in your life so that you're refined and purified through this. In verses 25 through 54, I'm going to summarize here from a time perspective, but let me highlight a few things that are important and of interest. Now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Count up the plunder that was taken of man and beast, you and Eleazar the priests and the chief fathers of the congregation, and divide the plunder into two parts. Between those who took part in the war, the 12,000 who went to the war, they're going to get half of the booty. Half of the material stuff. The other half will then be distributed out among the congregation, which is the remaining two point some odd million people. They're not going to get as many as the 12,000 are selected who went to war. Also, part of that booty or that wealth is going to be given to the working of the temple or to Eliezer and the priesthood to take care, the Levites to take care of the temple. And that will be distributed out as they talk about in here. Now what's interesting, as they take a look and this is being distributed out, one of the things I highlight there in verse 31, so Moses and Eleazar the priests did as the Lord commanded Moses, and the booty remaining from the plunder, which the men of war had taken, was 675,000 sheep, 72,000 cattle, 
61,000 donkeys, and one of those those donkeys probably are one of them that spoke. Remember that moment in Numbers? So one of those are pretty good when you're the donkey that spoke that God made to speak. 32,000 persons in all. How many women did they bring back who did not ever sleep or had intimacy with a man? 32,000 women were brought back. Woo! There's a lot of people here we're talking about. And as you go down through here, all the way down to verse 54, you're going to find that these spoils belong to the soldiers alone. But because this was a holy war, God wanted not only the soldiers to get not to be think that they can just loot and take everything. God always chooses to teach you how to give out of what he's provided. And so we find that these soldiers can't be just looters and, and just hungry to go, let's go to war so we can get more money. Let's go to war and get more stuff. Let's go to war and just... just, just. That is not a right heart. The heart is that they would learn how to give and he had to give to the, 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 the ministry, obviously, to the Levites. But he also commanded even the congregation that they take some of the spoils, they had to give back. They didn't just go to fight for the sake of fight and get. They had to be given back. And a portion of the spoil also was to be given to the Lord. And that was very important because God is always looking even in through situations like this, to teach you how to be a giving heart. But notice this. This when you know this is God's in this, right? When you look at verse 48, then the officers who were over the thousands of the army and the captains of the thousands and the captains of the hundreds came near to Moses and they said to Moses, your servants have taken account of the men of war who are under your command. Your servants have taken account of the men of war who are under our command, and not a man of us is missing. You just went against the entire Menonite army, 12,000 men, and every single one of them came back. None of them died in that war. Because God covered and protected them. He was doing the fighting through those men. He led them. It was a holy war. It was a just war. It was right in God's hours. And there's going to be fruit. So therefore we brought an offering for the Lord what every man found of ornaments of gold and amulets and bracelets and signets and rings and hearing. This plunder that they had they recognized that God protected their lives, all 12,000 of them, and they wanted to give back to God to show worship and praise of what he had done in their lives because they knew one of them should have died. Many of them should have died because it was 12,000 against how many? We have no idea how many thousand. If there's 32,000 virgins, <laughs> you can imagine how many men would have been part of that. Just do some with math. You can know that it's going to be a lot more than 12,000 men. But when God's in it, he gives you protection. 
May we be very careful on our vows, our promises, and our commitments. May we be men and women of integrity and accountability.